A song of ascent. When Adam and I will return the captivity of Zion, we will be like dreamers, and our mouth will be filled with laughter and our tongue with glad song. And they will declare among the nations, Adonai has done greatly with these. Adonai has done greatly with us. We were gladdened. Oh, Adonai, return our captivity like springs in the desert. Those who tearfully sow will reap in glad song. He who bears the measure of seeds walks along weeping, but will return in exultation, a bearer of his sheaves. May my mouth declare the praise of Adonai, and may all flesh bless his holy name forever. We will bless God from this time and forever. Hallelujah. Give thanks to Adonai for his good, his kindness endures forever. Who can express the mighty acts of Adonai? Who can declare all his praise? Behold, we are prepared and ready to perform the positive commandment of Berkat Hamazon, for it is said, and you shall eat and you shall be satisfied. And you shall bless Adonai your God for the good land which he gave you. Gentlemen, let us bless. Blessed be the name of Adonai from this time and forever. With the permission of the distinguished people present, let us bless our God, he of whose we have eaten. Blessed is our God, he of whose we have eaten and through whose goodness we live. We got a book? We thank you. We thank you, Adonai, our God, because you have given it to our forefathers as a heritage, a desirable, good, and spacious land, because you remove us, removed us, Adonai, our God, from the land of Egypt, and you redeemed us from the house of bondage for your covenant that you sealed in our flesh for your Torah that you taught us and your for your statutes that you made known to us for life, grace, and loving kindness that you grant us and for the provision of food with which you nourish and sustain us constantly in every day, in every season, in every hour. All right, Foster Brooks, take the top 17. First paragraph. No, him. Oh. The one who sounds like Foster Brooks. For all Adam and I, our God, we thank you and bless you. May your name be blessed by the mouth of every living, all of the living, continuously for all eternity, as it is written. For, um, Deuteronomy 8.10 And you shall eat, and you shall be satisfied, and you shall be blessed Adam and I, your God, for, all, for the good land that you give, gave that he gave you. Blessed are you, Adonai, for the land and for the nourishment. Amen. Amen. Jonathan, have mercy. The mercy we beg you, Adonai, our God of Israel, your people are in Jerusalem, your city, on Zion, the resting place of your glory, on the monarchy of the house of David, your anointed, and on the great and holy house upon which your name is called. Our God, our Father, tend us, nourish us, sustain us, support us, relieve us, Adonai, our God, grant us speedily relief from all of our troubles. Please make us not needful, Adonai, our God, of the gifts of human hands, nor of our wounds, but only in your hand that is full, open, holy, and generous, 
that we not feel that ashamed or be, nor be humiliated forever and ever. First paragraph in the pink. May it please you, and our God, give us the rest of your commandments, and through the commandment of the seventh day, this great and holy Sabbath, for this day is great and holy before you to rest on it and be content on it in love, but ordained by your will, may, you, uh, may it be your will at an hour, God, that there be no distress, grief, or lament on this day of our contentment. And show us, our our God, the consolation of Zion, your city, the building of Jerusalem, the city of your holiness. For you are master, the master of, of salvations, and master of consolations. Bottom page. Build Jerusalem, the holy city, so in our days, blessed are you. Amen. Josiah, top of page 19. Blessed are you. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of English, the Almighty, our Father, our King, our Sovereign, our Creator, our Redeemer, our Maker, the, our Holy One, Holy One of Yahweh, our Shepherd, the Shepherd of all of Israel, the King who is good and who does good for all. For he, he did good, he does good, he will do good for us. He is bound to with us. He is bound to with us. And he will forever be back with grace and with kindness and with mercy, with relief, salvation, success, blessing, help, consolation, sustenance, support, mercy, life, peace, and all good. And of all good things, may he never deprive us. Amen. Nice and robust now. Go ahead. The compassionate one, may he reign us for may he reign over us forever. Amen. The compassionate one, may he bless may he be blessed in heaven and honor. Amen. The compassionate one, may he be praised throughout all generations. May he be glorified through us forever to the ultimate ends and honored through us forever and for and for all eternity. Amen. Amen. The compassionate one, may he sustain us in honor. Amen. The compassionate one, may he break the yoke of affliction from our necks and guide us erect to our land. Amen. The compassionate one, may he send us ab abundant blessing to this house and upon this house. Amen. Amen. Elijah the prophet, he is remembered for good, to proclaim, us, to proclaim to us good tidings, salvations, and consolations. Amen. Together in the pink box, maybe God's will. What the heck was that? Aren't you glad that God understands the 70 nations? Hey, oh, pass me one. The compassionate one, may he bless me, my wife, and my children, my grandchildren, and all that is mine, ours and all that is ours, just as our forefathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were blessed in everything, from everything, with everything. So may he bless us all together with a perfect blessing. Let us say amen. Woo! Yehuda, top of the page 20. On high, may merit page 20, be pleaded upon them and upon us for a safeguard of peace. May we, may we receive a blessing from Adonai and just kindness from the God of our salvation and find favor and good understanding in the eyes of God and man. First paragraph in the pink. The compassionate one, may he cause us to inherit the day that will be, uh, that will be completely a Sabbath and rest day for eternal life. Amen. First paragraph at the top of the white. The compassionate one, may he make us worthy of, of the days of Messiah and the life of the world to come. Amen. Just keep reading. He who is a tower of salvation to his king, does kindness for his anointed to David and to his descendants forever. He who makes peace in his heights, may he make peace upon us and upon all Israel. And now respond. Amen. Amen. All right. Benjamin, son of my right hand. 
last paragraph. Fear or not, you is holy ones, for there is no depri deprivation. Deprivation for his reverbent ones. <laughs> Young lions may want hunger, but you, but those who sit, seek God and I will not lack any good. Give thanks to God and I, for He is good; His kindness endures forever. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Blessed is the man who trusts in Adonai, then Adonai will be his security. I was a youth and also have aged, and I have not seen a righteous man forsaken, with his children begging for bread. Adonai will give might to his people. Adonai will bless his people with peace. Amen. Amen. It is always odd to have a young man read that paragraph. Never make fun of somebody who pronounces a word wrong because the time will come when you do, you short little thing. <laughs> Grab the book, send them to the little guy. You need to say Mazel Tov, not Mabel Tick, which is how it comes out on your iPhone if you don't watch out. <laughs> so let's give a big Mabel Tick to the Spurlocks who have been married three years tomorrow. Joshua, let's have a force in this Okay, let's do that. Cock me into it. You know what? I have to say, um, when I was a kid growing up, I thought my parents did a great job of having just enough PDA in front of the kids so that you learn how to <laughs> treat your wife when you get older without it being gross and weird. So it was it's never gross and weird. It's just none of your business. <laughs> right. It's true. Exactly the way that it is. Um, so we are going to talk today about Parashat Lepakha. I thought that Mr. Upham's commentary on Lepakha was very good. It is an odd phrase, um, sometimes translated, um, go for yourself or... Another way to look at it is almost like in your going go, sort of like a repeat of the same word. Um, this, interestingly enough, and it's a cool the way that the timing worked out, um, is our wedding portion. It was the portion that I droshed on um, right before I got married three years ago, which is kind of cool. So, um, oh, right, exactly. So it's um, Mazel Tov to you guys as well. The um, the passage I remember from that lesson that I, I gave to the men, they probably they may recall some of this. We were taking shots. They might not remember that much. The point is that um, lechacha is kind of the idea of like, in your going, go. It's almost like wherever you are, be all there. You know, it's like, so when you do something, you need to do it um, with, with the right approach, with the right attitude, with the right whatever. Don't just do it, but do it the right way. And uh, Abraham is, um, he is such a great example of someone who does what God wants and does it the right way. And we see that throughout his life and especially um, in this portion, we see it a couple of times where he, he is fast acting. He doesn't wait to do the commandments of God. And he almost always does them to the full extent. Like he doesn't shortchange things. He doesn't do them a little halfway. He really tries to be a servant of God. What's interesting throughout this passage is that God reciprocates on multiple occasions. Um, throughout the passage, you, you get these blessings and these promises from God that almost always seem to speak to Abram at a time either of weakness or in a time when he might have doubts or, or questions, God is very good um, at both give, leaving him in some suspense at times, but at the same time, he always gives him enough to sort of have the, the, um, the, the prophetic inspiration to be able to accomplish whatever God is asking him to do. And in this passage, the very beginning, God begins by telling him to leave everything he knows and go somewhere else, and I'm not telling you where. 
which if you look at that, it's an incredibly bold request that God makes of Abraham, of Abram. And, um, but what's cool is the sages in the Midrash talk about how God addresses some of Abram's primary concerns. They say that whenever you go on a long journey, the three things that you are at most at risk of losing are um, your wealth or your, your, uh, your um, reputation, your, reputation your, your name, and then also um, travel and whatnot is tough on family life. It's difficult on kids. It's difficult on, um, on people having kids. It's just a lot of things that come in there. So God immediately addresses all three of Abram's potential concerns by promising to uh, bless him like a nation. So immediately God's saying, don't worry about your wealth. I'm going to take care of that. You're going to be prosperous. I'll make you a great nation. So not just I'll give you a land, but rather I'm going to make you a great nation. Then he promises him kids, uh, which is another area there. So family life is going to maintain itself. It's going to be strong. You've got, you got a promise there in a general sense. It's not as specific, but generically. And then he, lastly, he promises him that I'll make your name great. So in other words, like if you think about it, that's, it makes a lot of sense. For those of you who have lived your whole life in Charlotte, you may not realize this, but um, well, those of you who are a little older have moved or possibly have changed jobs, something like that. Um, you lose your reputation when you change your location. People don't know you. You don't have as much comfortability. You don't have the experience in that place. All of a sudden now, even, even like, it's really always funny in a job situation when, like, the manager is new. You know, the, the person who's now the subordinate, they know what they're doing. They know what the words are. They know what the people they're working with and all that. But the person above them who's technically an authority is totally clueless sometimes as to how, how it's done there, even though they may obviously have more experience or knowledge to get that position. Overall, they're a better, they're a better fit for it. But in the immediate term, it's a, it's a challenge because moving to a new place is difficult. And so God addresses this concern for Abram. He tells him, don't worry about the things that you might lose by, by obeying me. I'll give, the, I'll give you what you need. And I think that's cool because it's the same thing that Paul um, also mentions in uh, his epistles. I think it's in Corinthians. He talks to them and says that um, you don't have to worry about like, temptations you're going to face. God always gives you the strength that you need. He gives you what you need so that you may be able to overcome them. And that's, and that's basically the idea throughout Abram's life, and it's true for us too. That God has given us what we need to be obedient. We have those promises. We have those assurances. We know that God's going to provide for us. So when God asks us to do something really hard, like, I don't want you to work at all for an entire day, every single week. Oh, and by the way, throughout the year, you'll have these random holidays where you can't work either. Um, he always promises to provide for us. That's one of the things we talk about every week, or basically every week, on our Shabbat table. Um, the covering of the bread... Uh, reminds us that God covered the ground uh, with the manna. And when God covers the ground with the manna on the sixth day, he provides a double portion, specifically so that they would have enough to last them through Shabbat. So God was providing for the people of Israel to have what they needed for Shabbat. He does the same thing for us. So um, with Abram in this particular case, God gives him a, uh, an interesting challenge and Abram, Abram is an, he is a, he's already a noble character. Before we really even got a chance to get to know him yet, we already learned some very interesting things. In the last portion, um, we find out who he married, who his family was, and um, Rabbi David Foreman had a really interesting commentary this week on this thing. He, uh, he, he argues that, um, according to tradition, uh, Sarah is also known as Iska, which is like a name meaning beautiful, because Sarah is a very beautiful woman. And she is actually the daughter of Abraham's brother, Hron. So um, that's why when Abram later says, she's my sister, she's the, 
daughter of my father but not my mother, it's kind of in a weird generational kind of thing. In other words, her mom is my sister-in-law. We're not related, but you know she's got a, a different li- line of genetics there. So when he marries her, Rabbi Foreman was saying that this is almost like a proto-form of the um, of Yaboom, which is like the idea of taking the the dead the dead brother's wife. The idea of like that. Um, what's the word I'm looking for there? Levirate marriage. Thank you. Um, almost like a almost like Abram's trying to do that himself. God hasn't explicitly explained that yet, but he's apparently it was somewhat known because Judah's kids get in trouble for not doing that. So Abram's trying to take care of his family, which shows a lot of nobility and sacrifice on his part, but then he goes an extra mile. Not only does he marry, according to tradition, um, his brother's daughter to help perpetuate his name, but when he has trouble having kids, he basically adopts his brother's son. Lot, according to tradition, is also Haran's child, and he takes him with him when they leave. So Abram, Haran, according to tradition, dies young. We see that kind of in in the story. According to tradition, he dies um, in this incredible escapade in which uh, Nimrod tries to kill Abram by throwing him into a fiery furnace. We know that story. That sounds familiar, right? Mm -hmm. Abram survives, and Haran goes, ooh, he must be on the the right side. Oh, I'm with God, too. And he gets thrown in the fiery furnace, but because Haran was only doing it because he'd seen that it worked out for Abram, he he doesn't walk out. Mm -hmm. So it ends badly for him. And Abram does his best to take care of his family. This is nobility on the part of Abram. It's amazing. It really step, it shows the depth of his character. And, um, and so when God calls him out from his family, God has call- chosen someone who has already proven himself, but has proven his character by being more about the other people. And this is a trend that we're going to see, as Rabbi Portman points out, throughout the, the, the people of Israel. That is a character trait that God wants them to be defined by is to be defined by that, that care for their neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself, go that extra mile, do something, which is actually paraphrase what Yeshua said, that idea that you do more than what the nice guys of this world do. You, you actually love your neighbor. And Abram is such a great example of that picture. It's ironic, then, that Abram, who's trying to perpetuate the name of his brother, can't have kids. And then on top of that, God follows it up by saying, I'm going to give you a nation. Again, still can't have kids. Um, but, but Abram's faith is so strong, it's almost like he doesn't care. He just keeps going. And he, one of the things I love about this passage in verse, um, where is it? They, they get ready to leave. They go into the land of Canaan. And um, it says in verse 9 of chapter 12, Then Abram journeyed on, journeying steadily toward the south. In other words, Abram is way up here in Haran. God says, leave everybody you know, leave everything you've done, move to a land I will show you. Abram follows God's leading to Canaan, and he stops in um, like the northern area of Samaria in Canaan, but then he keeps going. And it's really interesting that he doesn't stop there. That goes back to what I was saying earlier. Abram takes it like he's obedient to God to the full extent. God said, go to the land I will show you, so Abram goes to the land God will show him. This apparently is the whole land. There's more land to it. So Abram's going to go and journey throughout the whole thing. He's like, he's such an, he takes so much ownership of the commandments of God. He really tries to literally run with them, so to speak. Yes, sir. I was going to say to your comment about the irony of it is um, it seems that this portion, as well as the Torah itself, is not without a complete sense of irony as well. (coughs) Down to the portion name where he's talking about Left the hawk, go go for it for yourself, but you know, implying a sense of 
of moving towards a goal, but several of the rabbinic commentators, uh, most respected rabbinic commentators have, uh, including Rashi, have, have uh, enumerated a list of 10 major trials that uh, Abraham or, or Abraham had to endure during this period in his life. So it's the idea, it's like, okay, go, but every single thing he's supposed to be doing Guess what? There's an obstacle in the way mm. every single time. Mm -hmm. So the whole idea of it being counted to him as righteousness, it just shows that his faith was was just over the top. Right. Because I mean, look at the nature of the trials. Right. You know, just from everything to the you know, obviously the Akeda being probably one of the most profound of them. You know, tests of faith. So um, Rabbi Nachman actually points out that there's a um, uh, a really cool uh, we use Abraham as a great example of how um, obstacles in the way actually increase your desire, your ratzon, mm -hmm. your um, mm -hmm. uh, your desire for what it is that you're seeking to begin with. Mm -hmm. So since Hashem knew that it was Him that He was, you know, in, in um, seeking in, in obedience and completion, that um, all of these trials were were sort of tailor made to him mm -hmm. to increase this desire it's like oh my gosh here i am going going to this place but guess what there's a giant wall right in front of me okay but i've got faith that hashem will get me around it or, or as the midrash or it, or as, over it. as the midrash points out uh here go to this land oh as soon as you get there here's a famine yeah. you might you might want to leave now yeah. <laughs> exactly so it seems like every single thing you know, you know what what appears to us as ironic is is really just like Okay, this is typical biblical emunah. Right, and that, yeah, sorry. So uh, just to that point, so and emunah is um, one of those interesting words in Hebrew. Of course, it translates in, in English a lot of times to faith. My grandmother Shosho would oftentimes say it's faithfulness. In other words, it's not just belief, because that's part of it, but it's belief that's perpetuated. It, it continues. It's persevering. Yeah, the and act, act, action according to the acting according, but also acting according to it over time. It's not enough to simply like have that flame of fire and move quickly and with zeal. That's part of it, but that was only the beginning of it. The thing about Abram that's so remarkable, as you're pointing out, is that he keeps going. He keeps running into those walls. He keeps running into those problems. But he doesn't stop. He finds, um, he, sometimes he doesn't always choose the correct path to get around the wall, as we see in, the, in this parsha. But at the same time, he's always trying to accomplish the goal that God's given him. He doesn't just go, you know what, this is too hard, I give up, it's a great idea, God, but I'm done. Um, and in fact, we get, uh, I, I mentioned the, the famine thing. It's interesting that with one of the sages, the commentary in the Midrash says that God does not tell Abram where he's going so that he would heighten his suspense. It was like he wanted to give him more righteousness. If he just told him, yeah, you're going here, like that wouldn't be enough for, um, for Abram to have accomplished things. He wants to make it exciting. He wants to make it interesting. He also wants Abram to have to show that faith, that blind faith. He wants to escalate his, his good deeds. It's not enough that he just simply obeys God, but he obeys God blindly. So it's like God's giving him extra stuff. It's kind of like the fact that my wife is planning our anniversary trip, and I do not know where we are going. I just know she's taking me to a land that she will show me. Um, and, uh, but it creates a suspense. And, it's, and, it, and at some level, it's a good thing, 
because you get excited about it. And sometimes it's a challenge. I'm a planner. I like to know everything about everything. So it's like I trust her, and that's really what helped. And that's the difference. Abram trusted God. So even though he didn't know where he was going, they had that relationship, and he believed him. And what's amazing about that is that then the sages talk about this a lot, the idea of adding to righteousness. They talk about with the people of Israel, too, that like God would actually intentionally put them through challenges so that he could increase their righteousness. He would give them more opportunity to do more good deeds so they could actually become even more righteous than they were before. And that's what he's doing with Abram. He's like, it's not enough for you just simply to do what I ask. I will give you a little extra challenge, a little extra things along the way that will push you, but I know you can handle it. That's another thing that Paul talks about. You know, that he gives, always gives us a way of escape. I know you can handle it, and when you give, and when you do accomplish this, it will be even more merit to your benefit that I will then reward you for even more. Yes, ma'am. That's really encouraging because so often in... Um as a believer, I heard many believers kind of calculate whether God was involved or not by the ease of the <laughs> journey. And so they would say, oh, I know God was there because he helped me find the dress. I mean, I know I was to get married. I said, I'm not, no, I know. You can't believe that. And I'm thinking, my goodness. So when things were, when the doors were open and the way was smooth, we knew God was there. And so it's so encouraging to know that. We're gonna. He's wanting to pour out favor and mercy and growth and stamina and all those strength, character qualities, right. and that's encouraging. He wants to make us better and not just simply make it easy for us. Mm-hmm. And that's the. Um, I mean, Julianne and I've been talking a little bit about marriage as we're getting ready for anniversary. It's been on, on our minds and talking about this idea that they, the sages express. I think I mentioned it two weeks ago. Um, that if God wanted to make it easy for man and woman to live together, He would have just kept them one being. Why separate man from woman, as you see with Adam and Eve, if God's goal is unity? But that's not God's goal. God's goal is not uniformity. God's goal is for two different people to subjugate themselves to become one. So they have to work at it, and that's good for both of them. And that's what we see with with Abram here. God gives these, these commandments, and he tells Abram what to do, but he intentionally puts those roadblocks in his path but gives him a way through it so that when he hits those walls, and you're going to see it over and over and over again, especially in this portion, Abram runs into the wall. Abram has another problem. Just when things are starting to work, something bad happens, and God meets him. And it's so cool that time and time again, just when Abram has to be thinking it's all over, there's no way this is going to work, God decides to have a conversation again. God will disappear for 13 years at one point in Abram's life, and then all of a sudden, just when probably Abram's, you know, given up on having his own kid, obviously Ishmael is the inheritor of the covenant, God says, you know what? New plan. You didn't know this part of the detail yet, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. And by the way, we're going to also make a covenant. We're going to be together forever. So God's, throughout this time, God's always there at Abram when he needs it to help him get through. But God doesn't make it easy on Abram, which is not a bad thing. Abram is also uh, maybe doesn't get credit to us because we can't we can't imagine what it have been like to be like him. To be the first hmm. is is remarkable. <laughs> Think about it in our economy it's it's remarkable as well. You know, I look at the Wright brothers and they were like the first men to fly a powered man made aircraft. Um, unbelievable. But man, I would not get in that airplane. <laughs> and I'll tell you what Anything that I've ever flown is like light years beyond them. And I look at what they flew and go, that's just stupid. <laughs> right? Right. And yet we, we revere that because it was first. God does the same thing. Abraham gets gets credit because he's the first one. Right. Not just because, and we say, that's where, I mean, it's, it's credited as righteousness. 
to have faith, it's because he's the first one. He's not emulating anybody. Right. You know, his his grandfather right. Ebert, no doubt, he he knew, and also uh, um, uh, 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 Shem. You know, he knew these men and learned from them. But Abraham's the first one called to go out. Right. And so, to me, that makes him so so unique, and and uh, and and the credit that's do him because of that, and God honors him because of that, we will never be able to, to compare except where God calls us uniquely to go out. And that's why hmm. if I were choosing a passage, I would not have chosen Romans chapter 4 and to tie into today's passage. I would have chosen Matthew 28, where Yeshua gives his, his hmm. marching orders to his disciples because each of us have been called to go out. Right. Well, that's the whole, the, um, the term used in Greek for the assembly is the ecclesia, the called out ones. That's right. The idea of, of uh, being set apart. And um, we definitely understand that people, Gentiles trying to keep the Torah is... Uh, we're the first. We're weird. Really, really weird. And uh, we're it the definitely... First in modern times. It, it makes it challenging because people don't understand you, people don't accept you. It's, it's, a, it's a process. But that's, just because it's challenging, like we were saying earlier, doesn't mean it's wrong. Um, nor does that necessarily make it right, but the idea is that you, that's why you ultimately have to go beyond the circumstances. God sometimes does open all the doors, and sometimes he, um, you know, knocks them down. But you have to, that's why you ultimately have to be following God. Yes, Micah? There was something in the Torah Club this week about when Boaz married Ruth, which led to Yeshua. It started with Abraham. Mm-hmm. But... God forbid us from marrying Moabites after, until after ten generations. Right. But the generations are Abraham, then Yitzhak, then Yaakov, then Yehuda, then Perez, then Amenadab, Amenadab, then Nachshon, then Simon, Solomon, and then Boaz, which was exactly 10 generations. Okay, well, that's interesting. And we've got, um, the thing is, they're going to do a lot of cool history with Abraham. I love that genealogy because it, um, it's weird. I mean, it's like the best way to start, start a, a nation of, of God's people is to start with someone who can't have children. Great way to start. The best... 10 generations from Noah. Right, and the best way to... to uh, to then, of course, progress that generation towards a righteous Messiah is to have some really weird things happen along the Unspeakable way. Unspeakable things. That we don't want to talk about. Um, because God is able to use those things as part of the idea. You're talking about like wanting it to be um, the irony of the Bible is because the Bible is not about the circumstances. It's about God. And if it was about the circumstances, it would be usually like a good story because we want the story to end well. We want the, we want the you know, every single story. If you, oh my goodness, sometimes it's almost maddening watching a movie because it's like, you know the whole basic plot. Person starts off, you get to like them. They face challenge. They overcome the challenge. They face a really big challenge. They come really far down. They face a far greater challenge. They rise above. This is every single superhero movie ever made, which I really like superhero movies. But they have the exact same story pattern, almost without fail. Um, but God doesn't always do that that way. God doesn't always fit our pattern of how things lately should work. In my mind, I would have said, yeah, 50 years of Roman exile, that's probably good enough. You learned your lesson. Let's get back. Let's have Messiah. It's time to just do this right. 
But no, God's idea was let's have a couple thousand years, make it look like it's hopeless, and then he'll intervene. Um, and uh, with the story of Abraham, like you mentioned, the next thing that happens is he has a famine. I mean, it's like, this is a really bad start <laughs> for Abram. Um, and then uh, Abram goes down, and then it's like, okay, let's see how bad can this work. Your number one blessing is I'll give you a land. Your number two blessing is I'll give you children. So first off, let's, let's drive you out of the land with the famine. Then number two, oh, you, you just happen to be married to the most gorgeous woman on the planet who then gets abducted by, oh, maybe the most powerful man in your country. So now Abram's got no land and no family. Um, he's getting wealth. At least he's got that part of it down. But um, things have gotten pretty bad for Abram at this stage of the game. But again, God intervenes. He sends a plague among Pharaoh. Well, you know, it happens to the fathers, happens to the children. Um, and Egypt sends them out. Now, what's interesting, though, is that, um, is that it continues to not go as well for Abram as we'd like it to. But before I get to that, yes, sir, you have a comment. Um, so just kind of picking up a couple verses where uh, verse 2, I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And verse 5, um, in the Hebrew, I will make you a blessing. Right, yeah. And so in the Midrashim, there's a lot of cool discussion on this one. But one of my favorites is um, there's a Midrash uh, where Rabbi Barakia says, don't read Baracha, blessing, read Barecha, which is another word for pool. In other words, I will make you a pool. And the Midrash goes on to... To to explain it, to say that through Abraham, Abraham was a was like a pool in the sense of a mikvah pool, in in the sense of people that would attach themselves to Abraham, he would purify them. Mm, Yeah, he would draw them close to the one true God, and uh, and and this was. And, and this was to happen to all the families of the earth. Right. In, in other words, uh, and Paul kind of picks up on it. And you know, we we read a little bit of that in the in the um, stop reading this morning. But the whole idea of the faith of Abraham, right? If you attach yourself uh, to Abraham with faith like Abraham, then that faith can make you righteous. It can right. purify you in the sense of right. your standing with Hashem. And so, therefore. By having Abraham's faith, we he is like a mikvah pool for the nations. Mm, that's cool. Um, and Shaul kind of takes that a little farther in Romans 11 with the whole idea of, of being grafted. grafted. Yeah. It's through the root of Abraham that we're grafted. It's the same idea because to to join Israel, right? Traditionally, you have to part of that process is Converting. a mikvah, right? right? Yeah. And so he it kind of ties all those concepts together. That's cool. Uh, the other the other cool thing in the midrash is one that says, uh, uh, you will be a blessing." They say, "Well, how was this fulfilled?" Because we pray, we pray the blessing. We pray magen Abraham. Right. We pray. Literally, his name is a blessing in. The daily right. prayers, right? pretty cool. and so in that sense, there was a literal fulfillment of this as well. Absolutely, yeah. The, the, the midrash goes off on that one. They say that um, not only does God make him a blessing, but He puts him before Himself, because the first stanza of the Amidah prayers is 
blessing of the shield of Abraham. Right. But the next one is about God resurrecting the dead. Yeah. So God actually promotes Abram. In fact, they, they said a similar runoff on that when he says that those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. They say God puts Abraham above himself. Because in other passages, God makes it very apparent that if you, you know, attack me, I, he will respond on his own behalf. But in this case, God tells Abram, I will act on your behalf. So rather than you having to take care of yourself, I will intervene on your behalf. And those who treat you well, I will treat well. And those who don't, I won't. So you get that. Um, God, God, he shows so much love to Abram. It's so cool throughout this story. And uh, when we get to chapter 15, I think it really kind of shouts out in that passage that God is, he's, his relationship with Abram is so tight, is so close. He, he really cares about Abram, and he keeps trying to interact with him in a way to keep that faith burning, keep him stronger. Um, and we see that a little bit here. Um, at the end of chapter, uh, of, well, throughout chapter 13, after the Egypt situation ends, Lot and his, and his, uh, his shepherds, they start having issues with uh, Abram's shepherds, apparently. I didn't realize there was not enough grass in, you know, the entire land of Israel for them to, you know, sit together. But apparently there wasn't enough. So in that particular patch, I guess it was too rocky. The famine was hard on them. So they, um, there's this issue, this conflict. And Abram, to his credit, is the one that steps in first. The sages say, great is peace. Um, in fact, I can't recall, and it's so unfortunate that I can't remember the name of the guy right now. But there's a whole little, like, run uh, from one of the sages on all the different ways that peace make its appearance in our faith and it ends with things like our last stanza of the Amidah is about peace the last the blessing of God is he will we sing it this morning in the psalm he will bless his people with strength and peace in other words it ends with peace peace is the greatest thing that God gives to his people God gives the wicked uh, wealth he gives them long life as a reward for the handful of good deeds they do do in this life but it says specifically in scripture, there is no rest, there's no peace for the wicked. So the wicked do not merit this incredible privilege of having peace. Abram fights for peace. Like Moshe, who would be his descendant later, he is the first one to step up to the plate. There's a problem, he doesn't wait for Lot to come to him. He doesn't say, well, you know, it's not even, I don't even have the issue with Lot. It's our shepherds that gotta fix things, we'll let them deal with it. He intervenes as the peacemaker. Messiah Yeshua would talk about the fact that the peacemakers are, um, would be called, what is it, friends of God? Is it sons of God? Sons of God? Sons of God. Um, Abram is called a friend of God. You get this imagery of this relationship with God is because Abram is a peaceful man. Abram, um, and he doesn't just go the extra mile by, by humbling himself to come to talk to Lot first, which is by itself impressive. He then gives Lot the opportunity to pick where he wants to go. Abram is... The veteran, Abram is the experienced one. Abram is practically Lot's dad in this relationship. And instead of saying, hey, look, I am, I am the big kahuna here, and I can pick. I'm going here. You can do whatever you want to do, but, you know, we got to split up, and unfortunately, you know, that's just the way that it is, but don't worry, I'll move first. He gives Lot the privilege of choosing first, which means that Abram has to do what Lot doesn't do. That's huge. The humility that he shows, the, 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 the uh, willingness to sacrifice that he shows. It's exactly what Paul, I think Paul loved Abraham. Paul does the same thing later. He critiques the Corinthians by saying, you guys don't get this. You get wronged by somebody else and you have to exact vengeance. You have to take them to court. You have to get justice. He says, sometimes it's better just to be wronged. 
Sometimes the damage to the relationship and the damage to the community is not worth you getting what you deserve. Was it wrong? Yes. Does it matter? No. You need to get, be a bigger person and deal with it rather than exacting what is yours from the other person. And that's what Abraham does here. It's not his problem, but he fixes it. It's like, I actually was writing about it this week, um, talking about Israel for my website. It was so funny. I like the, uh, the um, John Kerry, who's the Secretary of State, meets with the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, and of course they've had all this violence and chaos and mess. It's all the Palestinians' fault. They're all killing innocent Israelis for no, you know, no real good reason. They're all lying about what Israel is doing to try and you know, stoke the anger and whatever else. And Kerry meets with Netanyahu, and after the meeting with Netanyahu, before he's met with the Palestinian leadership, he has all this optimism, because now they have a plan to fix things. Because whose job is it to fix things? It's Israel's job. Did Israel cause the problem? No. Did Israel do anything, really, to, to stoke? Not really. Um, it's like, uh, but Israel's the one who has to be the first one to make that step. Israel's the one that has to give up something first, because that's what righteous people have to do. Somebody's got to make the move for there to be peace. And the righteous guy steps up and does it first. This is what God did with us. We were the ones far away. God sent his son to bring us. So we were the godless ones. We did not take the first step towards God. He moved towards us first. And Abraham does the same thing. Yes, sir. The, uh, the Midrash says that uh, they weren't arguing about the fact that there wasn't enough grass, which is what you think. But actually... Um, Abraham's cattle went out muzzled and Lot's started eating the grass and they explained that right after this, the very next sentence says that the Canaanites and the Jebusites were dwelling in the land so they connect that and say Abraham's herdsmen look at Lot's and go so is, is theft okay now? That's not your grass you can't take that grass, you didn't ask for that grass and, uh, and they ding Abraham and say, he's got no kids, he's going to die with no kids, he's like a dried up uh, mule, a mule, a, a sterile mule. So all this is going to end up being loads anyway, so we're just getting the grass ahead of time. Huh. And uh, they, if you if you've read the sages, you understand that Lot does not get a, a good uh, buy from them. Right. Until after he's affected by Abraham, such as what Abraham did to keep peace, right. he takes uh, he takes the short side, and through being with Abraham and being affected and seeing him, save him and all this kind of stuff, Lot becomes a righteous man. Well, it's interesting in looking at Lot. I think I see some similarities almost between him and Noah, mm-hmm. in that we know from the scriptures later on in the apostolic writings that Lot is a righteous man. But Lot's righteousness is not like Abraham's. There's different gradients of righteousness. And Lot's righteousness is good. It's not like he's not righteous, but he's not great. Abraham is great. There's a difference. The same thing with Noah. The sages compare Abraham to Noah, and they say, earlier in this passage we read, he took his souls with him that he'd acquired in the Quran. And they say, I mean, Noah had a hundred and something years built in an ark. Zero people joined him on the ark. Abraham's in Quran for like what? I don't know, 10 years, 5 years, whatever. And he's bringing, I mean, he's in Canaan for like, you know, 6 months and he has 300 and something people to go with him. I mean, he's got, he has impact. He's not just, he doesn't just have a righteous faith. He, he spreads it. 
but he does it in a way that doesn't just like bring converts he brings disciples and like his impact is huge so he's a right he's like he is a great righteous man so yeah to Lot's to Lot's credit he's not wicked but he's not Abraham yes sir so Abraham the Gosh of Abraham is 248 mm-hmm. does anybody have a negative commandments, 248, number of organs in the body, something like that? Well, it is the number of organs in the body, but not negative. It's oh, the positive, positive commandments. So, the, so there's this idea that Abraham is, he's, he is the man who, who exemplifies action, right? Taking action, moving, you know, as, as is associated with the, the positive movements of hope, which require, in almost all cases, Action right on our part. Right. So it's about abstaining is doing. Right. It's about doing. It's about being. It's about doing. It's about having alacrity in your doing. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and and take in, and be quick to obey uh, God. And so that connection is there in, in Gamatro's name. That's really cool. Yeah. He's got that. Um, actually, interesting the way they talk about how he makes his uh, his disciples. They they would teach that um, we're used to. Um, for lack of a better uh, cultural comparison, we're used to like the street preacher, or the knock on the door evangelist, or whatever is the is the idea that we get from Christianity. Abram's not like that at all. Abram's totally different. Um, if you take, it, it's almost like a weird cross, sort of almost between the street preacher, but a much more uh, quiet and calm level, and the um, relationship evangelism, which street preachers tend to ding. Um, the uh, the idea being, Abram would just be hospitable. He was friendly. He was nice. And people would be attracted to that, and they would come have a meal with him, and then when they came to have a meal with him, he would ask them to wash their feet, because apparently people around there worshipped the dust of their own feet, which I think is hilarious. Um, so God, his, his first step was, hey, let's get past the idolatry. And then he would lead them, in what we just did a little while ago, the Prakat Hamazon. So the point is, this is tradition, the point is that um, Abram found the ways to sneak God in there um, not being like aggressive about it, but he was open about it, and like, and 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 that had an impact on the people around him. His hospitality is what they say looked copied, because when he finally gets his righteous act right. together, he's in Sodom, and the two visitors come, right. and he invites them in. He's the guy who does that. Yeah, yeah. So a meal. A- Abraham has this impact. It's really cool. In a weird way, it's much like what I mean. I hope that what happens to you guys in the world. You're walking out there and you're wearing a kippa or you're not working on Saturday or not able to go to the baseball game on Saturday or you have these weird holidays on random Wednesdays and people are asking you, what are you doing? What's going on here? Why weren't you at work yesterday? Why can't you do this? Um, the barbecue is free. Why aren't you eating it? You know, that kind of... Those... You, you can work on Christmas? Right, I know. <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, all these different questions and the idea is... Why do you have strings on your pants? What is that? That's the one I always think gets most people most confused. The kippa, most people have seen before. They're like, okay, it's a small little hat. Jews wear those. What are those? Is that like some Native American thing? You know, the Pope wears the hat too. The strings he doesn't wear. The strings are different. So the idea being that you're supposed to stand out because I think it's like Abraham. You want to like, you hopefully want to integrate God into your lifestyle. What made Abraham's to great witness, I think, to the people around him was that God was part of his life. It wasn't just that he spoke about God, it's that he lived God. And when he, he acted in such a way that was different than the people around him, they asked questions, they wanted to know more, and he was open about it. 
he didn't have to be the fire and brimstone standing on the street corner because he was he was God among them. It was a different experience for him, for the, him and the people around him, and it was really powerful. Yes, sir. The, that tradition about Abraham kind of sneaking the, uh, like a blessing in with with travelers, it, it kind of the the question that the Lubavitcher Rebbe was asked was like, isn't that a little deceptive? Like, does that even count if somebody just barely even knows? who God is or has an idea of God and they say a bracha, like what good does that do? And his point was that it's actually more in line with a human's nature to bless God than it is for him not to bless God. Huh, it's actually okay. against human nature to ignore his very creation. So it's really just a connecting back to what's inside everybody, which is this connection to God. And that actually helps to make a little more sense out of it because of just how that all flows. That's, That's very cool. cool. Yeah, you're going to what someone really is, whether they realize it or not. Um, not, only, not, only the bless, not only having them say the blessing, too, just a little thing you can do is just when people sneeze, they go yeah. bless you. You yeah. get an opportunity, you get a buy anywhere in the world. You can say that, and no one has a problem with it, and you have an opportunity to bless someone else. Actually, they say that, um, I've, I've been reading the Chofetz Times um, daily uh, portion on uh, Lashon Haraf, and half of it is all the halakha, the practicality of how to avoid speaking evil speech, slander and gossip and that kind of thing. And the other half is all um, commentary about how great it is to speak peaceably and all that stuff. So one of these things they say is that um, there was one guy who was like renowned for always greeting people. Because in Hebrew, you greet someone with shalom. And he was, it was so cool that they made a point that he blessed literally everyone like he met. And he wouldn't let anyone beat him to it. He was always the first guy, you know, he, he wouldn't wait for somebody else to say hello to him. He would always respond first. But that idea of being a blessing, like we're talking about Abraham, he shared the blessing around him. One of the things we see here, when, when Abraham sends Lot, says, you take whatever you want, I will take the leftovers, basically. God then comes back, and this is so cool. This is the fulfillment of the way that God works. Abraham is generous, and God then says, you get it all. Abram tells Lot, you pick where you want to go, I'll go the opposite direction. So it says specifically, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw this area was beautiful, he chose that. God then visits Abram in a dream and says, everywhere you look, that's yours. So in other words, you gave something away, in effect, by giving, letting Lot pick first. And God's basically telling Abram, that's not going to be Lot's, that's going to be yours. And it's the idea of, in the, in the Proverbs, it talks about spread your bread on many waters and you'll gather much back. The idea of Yeshua talking about it's better to give than to receive. This whole concept of you act generously, God rewards you in abundance. And it's really kind of, it's counterintuitive to us as humans because we like to think of ourselves, well, if I give something away, I have less. That's the, the concept. But uh, Rabbi Lapin is very strong in arguing the idea that actuality, when you give away you set yourself up to receive more. Your personality is different, even just on a practical level. You, you're more likely to acquire more because you're not as clinging to the, the stuff that you have. At the same time, God also, in a spiritual um, economics system, rewards those who are generous. So when Abram sends Lot off, God blesses him. Uh, we also get here um, a really interesting, odd passage in the beginning of chapter 14 about these random kings with weird names we can't pronounce, that happen to have a war, and they tell us odd amounts of history about them. There was 12 years and 13 years, Slime and, pits. you know, yeah, <laughs> it's all this stuff. Actually, if you think about it, though, um, there's some really powerful image, uh, 
things we can glean from this. Number one, we learn that God is in charge of the world events. Abraham is this little tiny guy with his, you know, well, not so tiny family, several hundred people that he's attached to, living here. His little, ne- his little nephew is over here with his family, and way in the rest of the world, the powers that be are fighting each other. But what's fascinating is the time frame that they mention. There's 26 years that spreads across this, this conflict between the five kings and the four kings. And it's only at the end of these 26 years, long, long started, long before Abraham ever got to the land of Canaan, that 26 years later, God sets its battle up for Abraham to become the hero. It's almost like God was thinking, well, of course, way in advance here, to plan this out where Abraham gets a chance to, to step in rescue the people of Sodom, he meets Melchizedek, he gets to make a point to the king of Sodom, he gets to also rescue Lot, and it's like, this could have happened ten years ago, why did this happen now? And God is, as we see in the book of Daniel, God is the one who sets up kings and brings them down. God's the one who is orchestrating world events, and it's not about the world events, it's about his people. The world events are just like, you know, the background. It's the, it's the characters in the other part of the stage that are talking with each other, but they're not, no one's hearing their words. They're just in, they're, they're setting it up, making it look good for the hero, which in this case is Abram. And it's funny because the we may not realize just how impressive this was. Five kings versus four kings, you know, modern scholars, they come back and they say things like, well, back in those days, you know, five kings, they probably had villages of 45 people, so it's really not that impressive. Uh, Abram's got 300 and so It was probably an even fight, you know, whatever they want to come up with. These guys... Um, were, were kicking some serious hindquarters before they met uh, Abram. And I say that, pardon my, my uh, well, not really French, but anyway, the point is that um, the, uh, these guys, if you read the list of who they fight before they get to Abram, it's like a who's who of the Middle East. I mean, for those of you who may not realize these weird names and what they, what they mean, uh, let's, let's run through a few of them. The Rephaim. Rephaim are the terrifying giants that are roaming around the land of Israel that, that make all of the, the, the spies come in. We, oh, except for Joshua and Caleb. The other ten are like, we were just grasshoppers in their sight. They were huge, ginormous. Okay, that's the Rephaim. Then we get to mention the, uh, what was the other one? The Zuzim. Zuzim, I believe, also show up. Same thing, more giants. More giant, big, big, nasty people. The Emim. Oh, that's another one for giants. Um... Uh, and then the Horites in their mountains of Seir, like, they that's where... That sounds scary. That, that, that sounds scary. But that's where the Edomites go in and take over Seir from the Horites. In other words, you've got, like, these are, like, entrenched, hardcore people. And then it also mentions the territory of the Amalekites, which is also not uh, pretty nasty in the Amorites. In other words, these guys go in, and they just lay waste to the toughest, biggest, most terrifying enemies in the Middle East. And then they meet up against five kings. There are only four and they destroy them. So when Abram goes after Lot, he's not going after a couple of punks who be picked on his nephew. He's going after like the most powerful enemies on the planet. These are the who's who. According to tradition, one of them, Amraphel, is um, Nimrod. Nimrod is a mighty hunter before the Lord, right? Nimrod is like, he is the, he is the villain of villains. He's the one, according to tradition, who threw Abram in the fiery furnace. So, when Abram goes after Lot, this is like, I mean, again, this, the, the, the scripture is kind of, they don't downplay it, it's kind of buried in there, though, how significant this is. I mean, I, it's, it, would be, it would be almost as though a, uh, you know, I don't know, did anyone ever see the movie Red Dawn? 
I mean, that's a, that's a really first, random, random first allusion. Yes, the very first one, way long ago. The concept behind the movie is there's these kids living in, I think, Oklahoma, and all of a sudden, the Soviets, with uh, all their, you know, Russians and all these crazy armies, uh, sneak their way into Mexico and come across the border where there's not, a, of course, there's no wall there. So we're not protecting against it, and they just overrun everything. And so, like, basically, these trained super soldier um, Soviet Russian army is conquering the southeast of the U.S., and no one can stand in their way. And so as they're, you know, because there's no, we don't have the, you know, our militia or whatever else is there is not the same as the army that's off in D.C. or wherever it is. So we, uh, we're not fighting well. We're totally getting overrun. And this handful of kids sneak off in the wilderness, and they, they basically set up all these little traps and booby traps. And they're blowing up tanks. They're capturing soldiers. They're like, you know, they're doing all this stuff um, as like a... Yeah, kind of like yeah, the Patriot is another modern example. Um, you get the idea of it's like it's it's revolutionaries, people doing things, winning battles they shouldn't be winning is the point that they're trying to get at, uh-huh. and that is what Abram does here. He sneaks off first off, he fights them at night, which I think is really cool because that's not when you fight people in this time period. We're used to like night vision goggles and you know uh, the helicopters flying in and you know they've got satellite images of everything and it's like. When you fight at night, exactly, just like that. When you fight, they may be making that sound, though. That might have really you know, distracted everybody. But when they're fighting at night, and you're using swords, and, you know, it, that, that's craziness. Like, it's like, I think that was a bad guy. I can't really see, but that's okay. So it's like, the idea being that Abram shows, like, he shows that alacrity. He shows that, that chutzpah. He shows that, like, determination. And a little bit of shrewdness, because he knows he's fighting against four kings. He fights them at night. But God blesses him, and he's victorious. And then he ends up meeting up with a couple of very important kings. What's cool about the story is um, there's some interesting tradition that they play with off of this. Abram, of course, we know, according to tradition, has escaped the fiery furnace. So he survived death, so to speak. The king of Sodom, according to tradition, had fallen into these bitumen wells. Slime pits. And we noticed that we, we saw him fall in there. That was earlier in the passage. Now all of a sudden he's out again. So tradition holds that he miraculously survived this experience. Now he's thinking he's pretty hot stuff. So he's going to meet Abram, and it's like, okay, you know, hey, we both cheated death. We're both amazing. I know. And we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna negotiate. We're gonna be we're the powers of the world now. And but before he gets there, Melchizedek shows up. Melchizedek's very cool, very mysterious character. He, uh, we don't really know exactly who he is. We're not really told anything about it. Um, Melchizedek meets Abram, and it's amazing. Abram's riding the wave here, right? Abram is on top of everything. He's also, A, he's extremely wealthy. You know, we just conquered, like, a whole slew of wealth for all the other people. Melchizedek shows up, blesses him, blesses God, and he says, and God, the, make, the, the maker of heaven and earth. In other words, what God, what he, what he gives him is the idea that there's something bigger than the wealth that he's accumulated. God is the one who possesses everything. And Abram gets it immediately. It says Abram gave him a tenth of all. In other words, Abram right now is like, he, he, is, he is the greatest guy on the planet, practically. And, right, and instead of acting in arrogance, his first step is to give an offering to the priest of God. He's, his generosity is like overflowing. And he gets it. He's not just giving the offering because it's like, well, that's a cool thing we should do. But he recognizes that God's in charge of everything. He recognizes that all of his success has been God's blessing. It's the idea of why we do Birkat Hamazon. 
When you're full and you're satisfied, you bless God so you don't forget him. Because your tendency, as it says in Deuteronomy, is to think, I did this. The strength of my hand got me all this wealth. And that's not what happens here. And Abram doesn't fall into that trap. Abram recognizes it's God. So when the king of Sodom comes and says, hey, I'll strike a deal. You can keep the stuff. Let me have the people. Abram says, I don't need your stuff. <laughs> I don't know if you heard Melchizedek a little while ago, but my God is the master of heaven and earth. I don't need what you have. Um, and his faith in God is, uh, again, comes to the forefront and really stands out. Um, but Rabbi David Foreman points out that this is actually a sad story for Abram because the king of Sodom says, let me take the people. And he, he apparently wins, at least on some cases, because Lot doesn't go back with Abram. Lot ends up back in Sodom again. You think Lot would have figured this one out. You know, these guys, they have bad friends. Maybe I don't want to hang out with them. Um, but Lot doesn't learn that lesson. And so Abram's, Abram's heir apparent, so to speak, Lot, Rabbi Foreman points out, makes the most sense to be Abram's you know, child, again, has left him. So instead of being on this like high when we see Abram next in chapter 15, Abram is really depressed. God comes and God says, I am your shield and your reward, which is cool language because we just got done with a big fight in which he was offered a reward to turn it down. So God says, look, the same blessings that I was with you last night against all the five or four kings, I'm going to keep that going. You know. But Abram doesn't respond with like, thank you, this has been awesome, really appreciate this. He's depressed, he's sad, he's lost, he's lost Lot again. His inheritance now would all go to you know, his servant. His, his, he was a great guy, but not what Abram's joy and desire is. It's not Abram's vision for his life. And I just want to try, um, Rabbi Foreman has some cool ideas on how like, the conversation would have gone. So I'm going to try to see if I can dramatize this passage for you to help you understand how this interaction goes between Abram and God. Because I really, I really love God's reaction to him. So rather than read all of the different parts of this passage that are in Abram said, I'm just going to read to you the, the dialogue. Something like this. Fear not, Abram. I am a shield for your, your reward is very great. My Lord, Adonai Elohim, what can you give me, seeing that I go childless, and the steward of my house is the Damascene Eliezer? See to me, you, you have given him no offspring, and see my steward inherits me. That one will not inherit you. Only him that shall come forth from within you shall inherit you. See how it, like, cuts, God like, practically cuts him off? Like, in the middle, there's this weird passage where it says, and Abraham said, like, he, he's talking to God, and God doesn't respond, and Abraham's like, I'm sorry, did you, did you not hear me? I have no children. This is kind of a big deal. And it's that guy who's going to inherit me. And as soon as he gets to that point, it says, and suddenly, in the, in, the, in the passage, suddenly God responds. God makes it very clear. That's not what my plan for you is. And this is what I'm talking about. Every time Abram gets down, Abram's struggling, it's been really hard, he goes through something really challenging, God meets him. And God encourages him, and God reminds him, don't worry. It's not going to go that way. My promises are going to come true for you. And I love the fact that Abram always believes him. Abram never goes, yeah, that was great, God. You told me that last time. And look where we are. <laughs> Instead, God says, come look at the stars. So let's just not, <laughs> you're asking for one kid, how about I give you more than you can count? And instead of going, well, that would be great, Abram believes, and it's counted him as righteousness. So we see Abram's faith is so huge. He trusts God so much. Doesn't mean he doesn't ask questions. Doesn't mean he doesn't get fed up with his circumstances. 
we see that from David too. That 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 frustration sometimes. He, he just he's open with God. They, the the um, Breslovers uh, like to talk about the idea of hit what he do. The idea of like just talking openly with God. It's not it's not liturgical prayer. It's just here's what's on your heart. And God responds to Abram, and like David, Abram always accepts God's response. He doesn't challenge God and say, no, that's not going to happen. I mean, he kind of laughs at one point later, but the point is that he's, he's so open to God's promises, even though they're, they're, it would seem ridiculous in a way. Yes, sir. Just to step back a couple verses, the, uh, after this battle with uh, five kings, um, it says he goes to the valley of uh, Shiva. The Valley of Shiva, where Machitzedek and the King of Sodom both meet him, is the Kidron Valley. It is ah, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So if, if you think forward into the next uh, portion, you think about uh, Abraham's or is going to, to go to a place uh, to offer up his son Isaac, and it's not uh-huh. a place that he's not been before. He's been there before. And it's a place where he's actually made a choice mm-hmm. between the King of Righteousness and the king of the world, as it that's were. Cool. So he's actually made this choice previously at this valley. That's cool. And that's the thing we're talking about, what Johnny was saying earlier, this idea that God was, was working on Abraham. It wasn't just the commandments God gave him, but the process was building Abram into this superhero of a, of a righteous man. Yes, sir? Just one of the rewards the Midrash says when he says, it's so much as a thread or a shoe strap, you know, if I, or if I shall take anything of yours, because of his righteousness, Hashem granted him the mitzvot of tzitzit and tefillin. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Tefillin being leather, kind of like a shoe strap. Like a strap. That's pretty good. There's actually archaeological evidence to the fact that tzitzit originated about that time. Oh, huh. well, what do you know? That's pretty nifty. That's very cool. Um, and Abram, again, he has another little moment where he and God kind of have this conversation about the land, and Abram says, well, how am I going to know that you're going to give me this land? And that's when we have the covenant. Between the parts, God makes it very clear, I'm giving it all to you. And he expands it. Notice before he's told Abram, hey, wherever you look, that'll be yours. Now, he's basically taken it beyond what he could see. I mean, they say that on a clear day, you can see from this part of Jerusalem all the way out to that part of... There's only so far that you can see even on a clear day. Um, and, and God says, I'm going to get it all the way to the Euphrates River. We're like, for those of you who are not like big on geography, Israel right now is like this. Then there's Syria, which is huge. And, like, the Euphrates River is, like, in the top third, basically, of that. So, and it runs through Iraq. In other words, God's version of the land of Israel is, like, three or four times, maybe more. Way better. Than the size that it is today. So, forget about, you know, the Palestinians saying it's, you know, occupation and all that nonsense. It's like, no, 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 no. Actually, you guys, the Jordanians, Syrians, the Iraqis, Lebanese, you're all on Israel's land. We're just being nice and letting you stay there for now. Um, so the uh, God's blessing is even bigger. And I love that. Both times. Here Abram comes and he's confused. He doesn't get it. He trusts God, but it's hard. And God says, you know what? No, I'm not going to make that servant to your child. I'm going to give you children like the stars. And no, you're not just going to have the land that you've been walking on so far. I'm going to make it bigger than you can even see. Um, and then the, as the passage continues, we of course get into all the situation with Hagar and the mess that kind of plays out of that. Um, again, Abram, uh, he's, he's such a nice guy. He tries so hard to be a nice guy. Sometimes that, that doesn't help him out so much. But um, he's trying to do the right thing. And in this case, it doesn't work out the way that he wanted it to. 
Um, but what's interesting is, like, Hagar... Hagar is a thing for the wilderness. She's from Egypt, so it's not surprising she keeps trying, kind of wandering her way back there. But there's two things about Hagar that's interesting. Number one, she keeps going south, uh, which, again, going back to Egypt kind of makes sense, but she keeps getting caught in the desert, apparently where there's no water. This is a trend for her. Um, the, other thing that, <laughs> the other thing about Hagar is she gets lost like pretty easily, or seems to. And, for, and later on, when we see the situation with Ishmael when, when Abram has to send them out, because Ishmael's a, a bad influence on Isaac, um, Hagar wanders in the wilderness. And the sages go, there's no way godly, hospitable Abram gave them not enough water and food to make it to some town. Like, there's no way he just shoved them off and said, good luck! Obviously, he would have provided for them to make it to civilization again so that she could, he wasn't going to kill them in the wilderness. But Hagar gets lost. She kind of, she's depressed, she's bummed out, she doesn't really know where she's going, and she just kind of wastes her time until finally she's out of water. And the kind of a similar situation is here. The angel meets Hagar and says, where are you coming from and where are you going? And she has no idea. She just says, I'm fleeing from Sarah. Well, she knows where she's coming from, but she never knows. She, she has no idea going. where she's going. No idea where she's so, going. And, and that's a trend with the, the, with the descendants of Ishmael. It's like who end up being a nomadic people. Mm. And, you know, good, at, good at going, just not necessarily knowing where they're going. They know going. where they're going now. They're going and, to Europe and, then, and America. You know, yeah. the, whole, the whole passage about you know, how she, you know, later in, in the portion, in, in the Torah, where she talks about how she leaves her son a bow shot right. distance away, it's like, well, there's this complete identification of their people with, with weaponry. Right. It's, okay, you know, there's this projectile, and it's like, okay, well, you know, a bow shot, you know, it's like, well, how far away are you? It's like, well... I could get there with a shot of a 357 Magnum or maybe a Glock 17 or something like that. But who, who talks like that? <laughs> right. Except for people completely identified with weaponry. Right. And, that's a good point. And so that's um, that's that's another revelation of the descendants of Ishmael that, that comes about through. It, it's kind of subtle, but if you're looking for it, you'll see it. And Hagar, like I was talking about her getting lost in the wilderness, part of the idea here is that. Um, uh, one of the things that God does with her, it's interesting, he does somewhat similar with Ishmael. He has grace on Ishmael, and lot, in large part, I think, because of his father, Abraham. He also has grace on Hagar, as long as she's attached to Abraham. What's interesting is that God, the angel sends Hagar back. He doesn't say that Sarah's going to be nice to her now. He doesn't come and talk to Sarah and say, now you need to you know, take care of this thing between you and Hagar. He, um, he sends Hagar back. But it's interesting because I, I can't recall if I've actually read this in the commentary. It just sounds like Midrash because it sounds like it. Where are you going and where are you, where are you coming from and where are you going? It's almost like, where are you coming from, Abraham and his righteousness? Where are you going? Back to Egypt and its idols. It's like, what is your, what is your plan here, Hagar? Where are you going? What are you doing? And the answer is, you need to turn around. You need to go back. One of the things they commentate on Lot when he leaves, they say he goes towards or from the east, which is a bizarre way of talking. You don't go from the east, you go towards the east. East is eternal. Um, uh, so he, they say that he went from, in Hebrew, the word east is beginning, Kedem. So he goes from the beginning. In other words, uh, Abram is like, the, he is, he's like the ancient one. He's like connected to the ancient one. From the one from the beginning, he's connected to God. So when Lot goes from the beginning, from the ancient one, he's going from the ancient traditions, he's going from the worship of God. And that's kind of um, almost, I think, with the imagery you get here with Hagar. She's leaving, maybe for a justifiable reason, but she's fleeing from the one guy who has that faith that she can attach herself to. When we get to the chapter, on the, well, we're going to talk about it very fast. We're running out of time. 
But in talking about the, the Brit Milah covenant that God gives to Abram, God makes it very clear that it's the relationship to God through the descendants of Abraham that gets you in or that cuts you out. And it's really fascinating, Rabbi Foreman points this out, that this is, Abram's nation is weird. It's not, a, it's not a genetic nation per se. It is to some degree, um, as, as Paul says, what, is, what does it do to be, what good is it to be a genetic descendant, a physical descendant of Abraham in every way? They got all this amazing, like, by default relationship with God and all these blessings. But at the same time, God has this interesting uh, system in which people who are not descendants can be pulled into the group, and people who are descendants can sometimes be kicked out because of the, their relationship with the covenant. And that um, is something that Paul relates to in Genesis 11, or Genesis, Romans 11, when he's talking about, um, in fact, ironically enough, I think it's the same passage where he says, or, or right around the same passage where he says, what good is it to be a physical descendant of Abraham? In other words, his point being that it is a huge benefit to be physical Israel, but you have a responsibility still to act on that. And, um, and if you don't, then you can get cut out. And then the people who are not that, if they show that faith of Abraham, they get the opportunity to be grafted in, pulled into the group. Just as we see with the covenant of circumcision, God explicitly mentions the person purchased from a stranger. God makes it very clear that those who were not biological descendants of Abraham were welcome to be part of this community, part of this people, part of this covenant. But, again, it goes back to what do they act like. So Hagar here is, I feel like, getting kind of the same opportunity. She's basically being told, look, I will bless you and take care of you, but you've got to go back to Abraham. You've got to attach yourself to the guy who's close to God. Otherwise, the, the, the blessings are not going to follow in the same way. Also, I think it's funny is that um, the next chapter, when, God, when Abraham says, oh, that Ishmael might live before you, God says, don't worry, I'm going to bless him too. God's already settled this the chapter previously with Hagar. He already promised Hagar that her son would be significant. This is always the way that God works. He always anticipates our concerns. He's always taking care of them in advance. Yes, sir. As part of Abraham's trials, the idea that um, you know, part of him going down into Egypt is um, among, the, among, among the trials. And the, the whole passage where it says you know, Abraham descended into Egypt, or however your, your English is interpreted, keep in mind that um, the whole idea of what is referenced in, the, in Scripture as a physical location may not always be just a physical location. Right. It could be more like a spiritual condition. True. So in the, in the case where he mentions specifically that Abraham descended to Mitzrayim, to Egypt, so it's like, okay, my, my goodness, there's this completely righteous guy, and he is, for all intents and purposes, he's, he's going down. Hmm. You know, there, there is a descent, and, and one of the coolest things that, um, uh, again, it's a, it's a Breslau teaching that Rabbi Nachman talks about is that, that a, a repentant, there, there's, um, that a repentant Gentile can, can stand even above a completely righteous Jew, you know, mm. when there's complete and true teshuva. So, th this whole idea of this just a spiritual condition. Yes, there was a descent, but like you mentioned earlier, you know, in the whole superhero model, it's the idea that okay, yeah, they failed miserably at one point, or maybe there was a spiritual descent in this case. But guess what? 
it's just to make the ascent that much mm -hmm. more, it's just to make it that much more pronounced. Right. So, and we see that with Abraham. Right, yeah, we get that with his, with his people as well. Interesting, you mentioned the, um, the repentant Gentile. Um, another thing I've heard of that concept is like, it's almost like you choose to be part of this group. Like, you're not born into it, you're not automatically part of this faith, so to speak, but you have chosen that. That's a significant deal. Not everybody gets that choice, so to speak. And, and, and Abram, as, as Paul points out in Romans, is one of those people that, oddly enough, as both the forebearer of the, of the people of Israel, at the same time, he is also the one who chooses to be part of this relationship with God, to be part of this family, this nation. So in a way, he is like a proselyte, but not. And so he's like, he's both. And that makes him uniquely qualified to be the father of many nations, um, as well as the father of faith with God. Uh, as we get to it uh, throughout the, the circumcision passage, again, God loves to interact with Abram in a way that is just so cool. He tells Abram, I'm going to bless you and give you all this stuff. And then it says um, that I'm going to like, give you a son of your own. One of the things they say about Abram that's cool is they, use this, they say that God is, that tells Abram, I'm going to make you. And they, the sages say in the Midrash, the word make you is the same idea of like, I'm going to create you. In other words, it's not like I'm going to make you wealthy, I'm going to give you, but it's more like I'm going to make you into. So it's like his point being... a new being, man concept. Yeah. Say what? A new man. A new man. A new creation. And I think that actually was the reference in Midrash, and it was like, oh, I've heard that somewhere else. And the idea being that like God's promise to Abram was it wasn't just that I'm going to make you... Um, successful and bless you and all this stuff but it's like I will make you into that man and, and in tradition holds that God actually uh, regenerates Abraham makes him youthful again so he's able to have children uh, which is kind of cool and they um, but so the idea like we see in Romans chapter 4 that we read this morning this idea of resurrection from the dead is the concept that we're looking for God basically is telling Abraham, I'm going to make you a new creation. I'm going to change your physical nature into something that it's not. I'm going to transcend who you are. Um, and Abraham believes that. He sees it like resurrection from the dead. It's the same kind of level of miracle. Uh, also, of course, in this passage, um, God walks him through like all of the different things that he wants him to do as far as circumcision goes. Who he wants him to circumcise, what time, all this stuff. And Abraham is immediate. I love this part of the story. It happens so many times. It's like, it's like the, the story with Isaac. And Abraham rose up early in the morning to get the wood to take Isaac to go sacrifice his son. Abram's, Abraham doesn't ever go halfway. He doesn't ever say, you know, that's a great idea, God. Let me sleep on it, and I'll get back to you on that one. God says, I want you to circumcise. Boom. It says on that day, everyone in Abram's household was taken care of. It was like immediate. He did it all as fast as possible. Get it over with. Well, right. But it's so cool. Like he's a, he's an old guy. He's ninety nine years old, but he he moves with alacrity. He moves with that like intensity. He wants to be obedient to God. He runs to righteousness. I think the word actually used there when it says Abraham arose early in the morning is Vayeshem, which has the root of Shechem. And he went when you know. Remember the whole idea in. Shechem, you know, with the forced circumcisions, uh, yeah, yeah. but but the idea is, it's it's the idea of shouldering a burden. And it's like, okay, well, I don't necessarily want to do this, but I'm 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 rising early. I'm 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 gonna take this on no matter what because Hashem has given it to me. Right, and so, the, yeah, 
So that's just part of it, just it related to the word itself, by uh, Hashem, you know, and what we see happens at Shechem. <laughs> that's funny. That's a, that's a good twist. They have the, um, the, in fact, they use this passage and, and the one, and that one, and the one also uh, with the three strangers who show up. And he runs to meet them and runs to take care of them. They use this concept, the sages make him as the ideal man when it comes to being quick at obedience. His feet run to righteousness. One of the things it talks about in the Psalms and Proverbs is how much God does not like those whose feet run to wickedness. This happens all the time. People love to go do things they're not supposed to do. It's amazing how excited people are about these, you know. God sees the same level of excitement in Abraham for doing the right thing. Abraham doesn't delay. He doesn't wait. According to tradition, when you finish Yom Kippur, you build your sukkah. Boom. That night. Let's do it. Let's go on to the next mitzvah. Let's keep it moving. You know, you finish reading the Torah. Let's start with Genesis right away. It's going to be great. Let's do it. And that's kind of Abraham's attitude in this, uh, in his life, every time God tells him to do something, he acts quickly. And I think that's an awesome inspiration, and I hope that would be true for us. I mean, you know, I see some of the fathers in this room, uh, and some of the ones who are waiting for their, those kids to hit that stage when they move quickly immediately, the first time you tell them. Um, but how much reward? I'm sure there was when you told your child to do something, and they just did it. They didn't ask questions. They didn't complain. They didn't wait. They acted. Right, they've been taken over by aliens. Yeah, it's like, whoa, what did you do with my child? That's right. Um, but that's what, that's what Abraham was like. He was the good son. He always did what God asked him to do, and he always did it quickly. And God rewards him for that. Amen. Final comments? Yes, just real quick. Uh, during our portion discussion, we received a message from someone I think has embodied a lot of the values and Abrahamic principles that we've been talking about. Um, someone who is asked to leave where they've, you know, become comfortable and accustomed to, you know, to the community and stuff like that, just to leave on uh, a moment's notice, um, just demonstrating again that Abrahamic faithfulness and everything. Uh, Glennis is watching us oh. on, on the. Hey, Glennis. Uh, Love you, Glennis. Um, and so, uh, just wanted to say that, in light of all the. Um, Abrahamic principles, you know, that, that we're you know accustomed to talking about with such lofty esteem, that um, it's good to know that there are people still um, living according to that. You know, she did not necessarily want to leave Charlotte, but she, you know, had to go to Texas, you know, in order to you know, avoid going back to Colombia, and, and mm -hmm. um, but she, but she had. But again, there was the faith in Hashem, and um, right. you know, so so I, I see a lot of what's um, you know we're we're talk, we're hearing about describing Abraham, um, and she sends a message and says that she misses us all, <laughs> and you know I think it went to several people. I don't know who all the recipients were or anything, but um, she sent a, a screenshot of this room from the <laughs> That's room right there, and I was like, so I figured I'd, I'd want to lift her up for everyone here as well. That's Thank very, you very cool. much. Thank you. Good point. Yes. Yes, as I think there's a, there's a famous saying to me, the effect of life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you respond to it. Um, and we see throughout so. Abraham's life, his life was always de de dedicated or, or defined by that um, always having almost, he always had the right response. And I hope that we had the same. So if I can get you to close us out in prayer. <laughs> Good Father, we thank you 
for an excellent example in Abraham. I pray that you would find us faithful to be quick to respond to your call, to be quick to open our homes in hospitality, to keep our tents open, as it were, and, Father, to always trust in you, not to look at man for our wealth, our possessions, but to you. We thank you, Father, for the Sabbath you provided and ask you to bless the rest of our day. We pray it in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen.